Let's, let's start. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's start. Any, any prayer requests? I know that a sickness is going around everywhere. Um, I'd like to pray for safe travel. My husband, who is too good for his own good, is going to help our daughter, his family, the ones with the seven children, move from Auburn to Florida. Wow. And he is going to be driving a truck hauling a van. So, needless to say, I'm a little bit nervous. So, I'm afraid for safe travel for Barry. Barry? Yeah. Don't forget Benedict. Who? Benedict. Oh, yeah. Let's let's start. Um, it may take a minute, but I'm not that concerned about If it comes up, it's okay. If, if not, I'm not worried, Mike. Who? who yes. I want to for my nephew, um, his name is Rolando, and he's lost his sight in one eye. How? I think it's a problem with his optic nerve, and they don't think he's going to recover. How old is he? He is 49. Yeah, well. They don't think he's going to be able to recover anything, and, you know, praying for his other eye not to... What's his name again? Rolando. Rolando? Mm -hmm. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, so much to be thankful for. Christmas is um, a time full of paradoxes. Um, in Advent, Mary is pregnant. She's carrying a child. She and Joseph are on a donkey, traveling. Um, she's got God within herself. It's a time for us to wait. Um, she's waiting. I don't know how many of us wait with her. It's a good thing to do to help Advent. She carries God within herself and has, I think, some people may quarrel with me on this, a little idea of what she's facing. And then um, she gives birth to Christ. Um, and our salvation is at hand. In Revelation, we learned that Mary's pursued. How could it not be? How could it be otherwise? This is God. Um, if Satan were ever after anything, it would be after Christ. She delivers him, and we just celebrated his delivery, his coming again to the earth. It's a time for us to be renewed in our faith, to have Christ born again year after year after year. Um, we reenact um, this moment of his coming to birth in us. He's already here. So I hope for all of us it's a time of being renewed. The child in us that will become an adult and show an adult love. So, and now we're heading, we did um, Holy Family, Solemnity of Mary, we're heading towards Epiphany and Christ's baptism. It's a rich time for all of us. Help us all to, um, to receive all that the church and you have to offer in that help. To not let the world keep us from um, being glad, adoring you, um, being grateful. So for all the mixed blessings of Christmas, 
it's a time of joy, but very often um, we carry burdens um, involving our loved ones or friends. So for all of us, let us be glad, whatever the circumstances. Ask a special blessing on Barry, um, who we know is better than he is. <laughs> we don't want to tempt you, God. We do not want to tempt you here. Um, watch over him. Keep him safe. Surround him with your protection. Um, help him to be really careful. Be attentive to others and careful on the road and of himself. Um, and let Anne's heart quiet some. Trust in you. Um, and we ask a blessing on, I'm sorry, Oli Rolando. Rolando, yeah. Um, what to do? Um, heal him, please. Help him recover his sight. Surprise the doctors. And if it's not your will that he recover it, um, help protect his other eye. But whatever happens, let this be um, an occasion for growing in our grace. It seems to me one of the things that we learn in Revelation is that um, wherever there's holiness, it will come under attack. Um, people who are good are generally going to suffer more. Not always, but um, watch over all of our loved ones. Watch over us in our efforts to be good. Help us to stay faithful to you, close to you, whatever's going on, particularly in this holiday season. Um, I ask a blessing for the work that we're doing here. Um, we will get to it in a second. Um, this is as close to um, being with you in your kingdom as we get in any of the readings. And um, what we're shown is that our world is fraught with dangers, calamities everywhere. And the final word for us, you already know it, you've, you've defeated sin and death, so we have every reason to be glad. The great temptation we face that Revelation makes clear is being too comfortable, not enduring, not doing your will. So help us all to take a strength from everything that Revelation is giving us. Um, I ask for a blessing on Bob. Um, let him know that our prayers are with him. Help him um, to recover his health. Um, let that be so for members in our family. Um, be with Mary. I don't know where she is. And Connie. There is a sickness going around. Um, surround everybody with your protection, please. Keep everybody well. And. Um, the one last thing and most important thing that I would ask is help us to live these readings. A lot is asked of us. Um, give us the grace um, to make them real in our own lives. We offer these prayers in your name. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I want to offer a special, I think on behalf of all of us, certainly for me, I want to offer a special prayer of thanksgiving for Benedict. Um, I was saying, you know this, you were present. I was saying to Suzanne the other night that we could have lived um, during the papacy of both Benedict and John Paul as one of the greatest gifts 
we didn't start out in the church, we were converts, we came in. To have come into the church at a time when two popes um, offered themselves, <laughs> hard to believe that Benedict isn't with you right now. Um, but um, I offer my own thanksgiving and I hope on, the half, on behalf of everybody else. He fought an intellectual battle during an intellectual age. It's one of the dangers of our age. Everybody's educated and everybody thinks they know. He had a really fine mind and um, he used it in defense of our faith and he took flack for it everywhere. The intellectuals across the world attacked him constantly. Um, for his great courage, his great faith, um, the way, the uses to which he put his mind to hold on to our faith at a time when everybody was using their minds to undermine it, um, what a great gift to us and our church. So. Um, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Benedict. Um, if there are any taints, let our prayers help wash them away. Receive him in joy. It's, it was the great end of everything he did. Um, let him know a joy that he's waited for all of his life. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's do the poem for tonight. I put two poems out for you. We'll do one next week. We've done both of them. I think both of them before, but not in this context. The book of Revelation, I, I, I want to put this out to you later to hear from you all what your response is, because it seems to me in some ways Revelation is a terrifying book. It's, um, it's threatening everywhere. It's full of calamities and um, hurts and woundies and injuries, attacks, demonic. Um, we, don't get, we don't get any close to this in the Gospels. You can't find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We did them. You can't find anything like this. Um, what we're, what's presented to our sight, our understanding, is um, these awful um, punishments and temptations to man and the trials that he faces and having to overdo, overcome them. So I thought it would be appropriate to, to find a reading that would speak to that. So I'm going um, I'm to read Luke Havergal, um, Edwin Arlington Robinson's poem because it's prophetic. We've read it before and then next week um, I'll, I'll read um, Alan Tate's The Cross, which to me is one of the most terrifying poems I've ever experienced. In some ways it's more terrifying than Dante's Hell, but we've read it, but we're going to read it in this context. So um, that's the reading that we'll do. Um, so it's in the spirit of facing dreadful things, prophetic dark things, that I want to read this poem, okay? Remember, um, Robinson's the one who did Isaac and Archibald? We did that maybe, I don't know, six months ago? Nine months, it's been within the last year. Remember, it's that poem about that young boy who's aware that his two uncles are going old and they're both speaking against each other and, and noticing in his presence, secretly, privately to him, that there's something wrong with the other. It's what happens in old age when somebody sees something's going wrong with somebody else and they don't realize it themselves. So, um, um, remember, it's a long narrative, it's quaint, it's lovely. There's a, 
um, a, um, an awareness that death is in the background of that whole poem, but is told from the point of view of a young boy who's innocent and aware, so we're left with that irony. He's watching these two old men die. He loves them. Um, he doesn't understand death yet. So there's that wonderful irony. This is dark. This is very different, okay? Robinson's Luke Havergal. Go to the western gate, Luke Havergal. There where the vines cling crimson on the wall and in the twilight wait for what will come. The leaves will whisper there of her and some like flying words will strike you as they fall. But go, and if you listen, she will call. Go to the western gate, Luke Havergal, Luke Havergal. So we know that it's prob it seems to be about some love between Luke and some woman, whatever happened between them. No, there's not a dawn in eastern skies, the light coming, to rift the fiery night that's in your eyes. But there where western glooms are gathering, the dark will end the dark, if anything. God slays himself with every leaf that flies, and hell is more than half of paradise. No, there is not a dawn in eastern skies, in eastern skies. Out of the grave I come to tell you this, out of the grave I come to quench the kiss that flames upon your forehead with a glow that blinds you to the way that you must go. Yes, there is yet one way to where she is, bitter, but one that faith may never miss. Out of the grave I come to tell you this, to tell you this. There is a western gate, Luke Havergal. There are the crimson leaves upon the wall. Go, for the winds are tearing them away, nor think to riddle the dead words they say, nor any more to feel them as they fall. But go, and if you trust her, she will call. There is the western gate, Luke Havergal, Luke Havergal. He's being warned. And there's this mixed character character to this woman. Um, what's behind it is the passion of a kiss, the flames upon his head that blinds him, but he's called to go to that western gate nevertheless. Okay. Um, Suicide? Sorry? Suicide? Suicide? Go ahead. Do you want to... I'm not... I didn't want to take any time, but take... go. I don't know, like, like he misses someone and he wants to go with that person, you know, kill himself and, you know, the, the, the bad spirits are calling him to do it. It's an undercurrent. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I, um, my own thoughts don't go that way, but um, there's certainly something like a despair um, that he's, he's got to face something, maybe betrayal of her or her of him, probably him of her. Um, and he has to answer for it, so he's carrying something on his conscience as he approaches death. Um, and the whole prophecy, the voice is calling him to... So we're left with the sense that he can't escape it, he can't avoid it, he has to go. He has to face death in some way. Um, I don't have a sense of suicide, but despair, a reckoning, you know, or... It, I mean, one of the beauties of... of um, Robinson's poetry, if you've ever read it, Richard Corey is a 
is a high school anthology poem. Um, Corey goes and commits suicide and nobody can, nobody can figure it out. Everybody says he's got no reason to kill himself and he goes off and kills himself. One of the things that Robinson leaves us with is we have no idea what motivated this act. I mean, he presents it so that we're left that way, that there's so much about things we just don't know. Um, he belongs to that Eastern seaboard culture after the 19th century uh, um, revolution, that the, the founding Protestant generation is gone, that it's been replaced by Emerson and the modern skeptics and, and modern poets. Robinson's one of them. I think he's one of the best American poets of the last century. But there's a dark, skeptical quality to him. It's a beauty to his poetry. Um, okay, let's let's look at um, at uh, at Revelation. Before we start, and I've got a number of things to cover here before we get to the text. Um, <laughs> Bob would laugh at that too. Um, I've got a couple of opening reflections to offer you, um, mostly because this this work is so difficult, and I don't want I don't want to just leave everybody in your heads. That's just something I do not want to do with this work. So, two thoughts before we begin. One is. The one thing that I would encourage everybody to do is to take this work very, very seriously. Um, if we read the Gospels, we come away, I think, um, that may, this may not be the right way to put it, but maybe getting comfortable with Christ. We get used to him, we talk with him, we think of ourselves as committed Christians, we try to live the way he asks. Um, he gives warnings of things all the time. Um, the modern world, particularly the fundamentalist world, looks at him as a buddy, a you know, a good person, compassionate, full of mercy. If we're reading the Gospels, that that's seems to me a, a less than honest, and it's a simple-minded way of reading the Gospels because Christ is giving warnings everywhere in his parables and um, his turn from the Jewish people. So we have to be on guard in in the gospel. But the point that I want to make here is that um, there may be a danger in the gospels in getting comfortable with Christ. We get used to him, we know him, we know his parables, we live his faith, we think we're okay. And then we come to Revelation and it seems to me all that gets knocked away. That now we're looking at Christ fighting a battle with Satan. There's a battle in heaven. A third of the angels are gone, washed away. There are calamities everywhere. So we're seeing the direct effects of sin everywhere in the world. There are human sins, there are natural catastrophes everywhere. Revelation is filled with those things. So um, the one thing that I would like to say, urging you all um, to read this seriously, it ends the Bible and if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm glad for any corrections here, so often one of the impressions that we get from, Mary, or from the Revelation is, occurs in the, uh, in the um, rosary with a description of Mary. What's the description again? She's 
clothed in the sun, the moon. You know, we've got this. Yeah, I mean, it's a glorious. That's revelation. That's it. That's the image we're left with, year after year with the revelation. I'm not. A, I'm not aware of, of, feeling the reinforcement of beginning hitting hit over the head, with dark pictures from revelation. We go through the Bible, you know, in cycles every few years. But I think one of the things that we take away from Revelation is that. Um, I said this when we did Matthew, that when I did it at St. Francis, it was a shocking experience for me because I realized we get passages from Matthew all the time. But reading Matthew as a whole changed my reading of Matthew. And I hope it did for you guys. Um, well, I think one of the effects... Sorry? I know. Would you, would you mind just sharing with everybody what you said to me, uh, your experience? Would you mind? Forever, yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's you. I, I'm sure everybody has this in your head. How how much you? I think. I mean, what if I were to describe Marilyn? What? Because I know this for myself. Very often we think we understand something. There's a difference between understanding something and realizing it. When you realize something, you go, "Oh, holy! You know, you've known it." I mean, the experience that Marilyn's describing, I've had countless times in my life. One of the dangers, and we talked about this when we started the gospel, is um, the, um, they become so familiar to us in readings that we think we know them. Catholics don't read the Bible. Protestants read the Bible. We don't. One of the discoveries that I had when we did Matthew was that I realized I didn't understand Matthew. I mean, I thought I did. When we read something as a whole, we read it differently. What I want to impress on everybody right now is that's even more true with Revelation. It ends the Bible. So even if we've got all of the Gospels in us, we can't really understand them until we read that whole and we get to it. Because we get a very, very different view of Christ from Revelation than we do in the Gospels. So I just want to leave that with you. I'm, I'm trying to get down to earth as much as I can here. Take this book seriously. That's the first. The other night I was talking with Suzanne and, and asking her what her impressions were because I think in the note that I, I wrote you guys, I had just been, um, what's the word, surfing the, surfing, you know, the net just to see what people were saying on Revelation. I was stunned. I was just shocked. Um, I, would, I was coming across people who said that the first horseman was Satan. At the same time, there were people saying it was Christ. Um, I heard one, I, I mean, all of these people are articulate, educated, they're presenting well-developed arguments. This is what's on the web. 
one person was saying that the um, that the first horseman, um, you know, on the white horse and um, had a bow. It could not be Christ because Christ had a sword. You know, there were others who were making arguments that be, this shows you how there's a tendency to read the gospel, or I mean, Revelation in three different ways. I'll get to it in a minute. Some people were equating actual scenes in Revelation with actual historical events. So some, one, one person, and I think he represented a group, he said that the three woes in Revelation represent um, three stages of the development, the effect of Islam on the world. From the point of view when um, Muhammad was born to the um, to the, um, sorry, my mind, um, to the destruction of Constantinople, when, in a sense, the Christian West came to an end because Islam had defeated it. That was the capital, that was the end of the Holy Roman Empire. That was marked by an Islamic victory. And then to the wars that involved um, Islam against itself in the Second World War, when, when part of the Islamic world went in support of Hitler and the allied, you know, the forces there and others went against them. The, um, um, the Islamic world from Arabia went against them so that they were fighting against themselves. The Islamic wars, I mean the uh, Iranian-Iraqi wars, um, Iraq's attack on Kuwait, where the Islam nations are going against each other. So somebody was very clear in their mind, they really believed that those three woes had to do with Islam and mapped it out. So it'd be very, anybody who, who looks at an argument thinking you've got to be able to back it up, these people are doing that. They've got evidence, they're making arguments. We know a good friend who is convinced that the world was going to end last year. And she would mark dates and relate them to, to the revelation, to passage and say, see this, 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 this. They're all happening. So one of the things I want to, a question that I want to just raise tonight, why, why is it that people approach revelation in that spirit? That, that so many people look at the events being described and identify them with actual historical events in the past, in the present. I don't want to get into this, but it's just a question I want to leave you with. In fact, I'm, I'm going to offer a thought right now and then go on. But um, it, it seems to me there's um, one of the dangers of reading Revelation is because it's so mysterious. Um, and yet it's speaking about very specific things that to read it helps give you some sense of control or understanding of the world. Maybe even controlling it because if you understand it, you think you're prepared for it, you're better able to deal with it, okay? So the second point that I'd like to leave you with, it seems to me one of the things that's, that we, we can't come away from revelation without experiences is the importance of living in mystery in our lives. I just want to underscore that. That a lot is made clear in Revelation, but how to understand it is left unclear. We know from Revelation, we, we know from the Gospels that, in fact, Christ's words are going to give it to us. I'm going to go to them in a minute. Um, evil's, evil's been conquered. Sin and death. When we finished Matthew, I remember reading that passage where he said, all of this will come to pass. He's going to die, and he's going to rise again. In that moment, my argument, 
a whole new order, new heaven, new earth, came into being. He defeated evil, he defeated death. That was done. We know in Revelation that it's done. What people are going to do with it, with that knowledge, may be another thing. So, on the one hand, while Revelation presents all these calamities, to me it's one of the most encouraging books in the Bible because it's making clear um, the victory's already been won, the battle's been won. The question is, given the time that he's given us, um, does that help us in our faith? Are we taking seriously what we're facing? On the way here, I asked Suzanne again what she thought about it, and I loved her response. This is from her. This is her wisdom, not mine. I wish I had a cord, and she's going to make faces at me if I ask her to repeat it. Um, she, she said... She said, one, one of the qualities you come away from, one of the impressions you take away from Revelation is the world is full of woes. It's calamity, there's not enough woes to, to go around. They, they won't stop. One of the most important things is living in uncertainty, to not have control over everything, particularly if you have faith. That's one of the calls of our faith, to, to live in mystery. Revelation, I think, underscores that. Um, she's, and I said, well, some people might accuse you of being a romantic, that you just live in this la-la world of faith. You know, and she said, no, I'm not. She said, um, I live in the world. I live in reality. Suffering's a part of my life. But I live in mystery. It's there. It's part of who I am. It's part of the world. So it seems to me one of the things that Revelation does is makes clear, this is so important, it makes clear end times. There are going to be end times. There's no way to escape. Every one of us will face death. Every one of us will face a, a judgment. It's going to happen. We know the end result. If, if we don't take seriously living that, how much worse is our sin? Because the victory's already been made. You know, the battle's already been won. So the interesting thing for us is that we have every reason to have a strong faith um, and an even greater reason for living in mystery because we're here in mid-time, in, in an intermediate time. We're not at end times. And here's my final word on, the, on an opening. Just a, um, We started this course reading literature. Um, some months ago we took a break for what I've been calling this section on apologetics. We did, um, we start with Fide Ratio, Regensburg, um, um, Abolition of Man, Orthodoxy. And the root of all of those I suggested was um, Pope um, Leo XIII's Eternal Father in which he, he called for a recovery of natural philosophy. Every one of those individuals was calling the modern man back to his head, his intellect. Because if we don't do a better job with our minds, there's no way we can do a good job with the sacred. Um, so we went through this long period of um, trying to strengthen our understanding of our faith, excuse me, 
and the importance of reason in living out that faith. That's not a small thing. By and large, the Protestant world um, debunks one half of that. They make faith everything. Um, that can't be so us. Pope John's book was Faith and Reason. And I've suggested um, more than earnestly that there are two parts of the incarnation, man and God. I was so glad to hear, um, you know, that some of you have been taking more seriously Christ as a man and what that means for our experience of him. So here's the push for the last part of this section that we've done on apologetics, because we're two meetings and we'll be back to literature and picking up literature again. This is the last push. This is the last book of the Bible. What is it showing us? It seems to me one of the most important things we take away from Revelation is um, the, the importance of reading in our life. And I can't, I can't underscore that enough. And I tried to suggest some of the problems. If you look on the net about, if, you know, Google Revelation, you're going to find people all over the map. They're going to be making all sorts of claims. They're going to be backing them up with evidence. And it raises a question, can the first writer be Christ and the devil? It can't be both. One of them is wrong. Or both of them may be wrong, it may be another. But they contradict each other, so it's something wrong. Um, so fundamentally, what Revelation is about is about reading. And you, you know that I've been hitting you over the head on this issue since we began. And my claim has been, we don't read very well. We, we think we're educated, we're smart, and we very often don't realize how blind we are. So one of the problems that Revelation is presenting us with is the problem of reading. You know that. It's hard to make our way. He, do, he does not use a word that a third grader wouldn't understand. I think I'm right in it. What he does with those words is another thing. So my first comments by way of urging you as we, as we start to get into Revelation seriously here is take it seriously. Take it very seriously. It's not a gospel. It's easy to read past it. I think that's a huge mistake. And the other is that um, it seems to me that it encourages us to live in mystery because it puts us in a place that no other work can. It puts us in the world. It begins in Patmos and it's taking us to heaven. So a timeless and a time order are superimposed. They're one with each other. It makes for difficult problems trying to, very often John will be talking about an event that's going on in the future. And he's referring to something in the past. We've got to be constantly moving with him and trying to figure out what he means. We're not in linear time, in scientific time, one moment following another. We're in a very confused time. And I'm gonna say, one of the gifts of Revelation is that it's teaching us to live in mystery, to know that everything's not linear. We got this from Dante, par excellence. God, there is no past for God. There is no future. How often do we live in God, with some awareness of God's time, that he's doing something with us from a point of view of final ends in this time, so that we don't understand. And just to back up this point, remember, because you, you know how, how important this is to at least 
the role that I have in this work we do together. Remember the argument that I gave you several weeks ago? Um, the realist position on knowledge is this, nothing gets in the mind that doesn't first get in the senses. Um, they, a, a realist would argue against the modern idealist philosopher, Descartes, Kant, and the rest. Because those people maintain that we have these innate ideas and that's what we know. A realist says, no, that um, we're, we're bodily creatures. Our bodies are essential to our nature. Nothing gets in our head except through the senses. Christ was present to our senses. So long before it ever became a matter of faith, it was a matter of reason. He was there. We can't doubt it. The historicity of the Bible can't be questioned. Everything took place before our senses. So for us to downplay reason is sheer stupidity. In my for, the, for the fundamentals to say faith is everything just doesn't hold weight next to the incarnation. The incarnation means hu human. Christ could not have argued the way he did if he didn't use his reason. And every one of his arguments was understandable by everybody around him. Anybody, anybody open to hearing an argument, right? Using parables, arguments. He did not use reason. So as the, the central, one of the central defining marks of our faith is faith and reason. It sets us apart from the Protestant world, it sets us apart from Islam or Judaism. So, when we go into Revelation, we're going into a vision that took place on the world in Patmos. It takes us to a heavenly kingdom. We are called to keep both powers alive, reason and faith. But it's, it's requiring of us a different way of reading. We have to hold two orders together simultaneously. A divine order and a historical order. And I'm trusting everybody see how, sees immediately how hard that is. Because most of the time when we're in the world, we're just leaving linearly. This, 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 and that's the meaning of things. In Revelation, we can't. <laughs> we're going back and forth all the time. So let me stop, and then because I, I want to get to um, my notes and and the book. Any any comments or questions before we start? I just have a quick comment. In talking about how some people have interpreted this, I remember back when we could not leave our houses for a few months, reading online someone that said that the crown was pointing to the coronavirus. <laughs> That's what it was. That, that, that the crown in Revelation that that was the coronavirus. <laughs> what about the bear? They didn't get there. <laughs> you, you said the battle was won, but this is all about battle. Well, explain that. What, what battle are you saying is won? Well, Christ defeated, Christ defeated Satan. Yeah, but Satan's back in here. But he's, I know, but he's defeated. And, I mean, it makes it clear that Christ has given him a time, but that time will end. I mean, let's... Okay, but now let's, let's talk about okay. it. Because now you're talking about a battle. You're, you're, Satan's coming down here, and Satan is working on us. That's the battle that we're into. And we got to, you're saying, hold on to faith and reason, so that we can avoid that. But it sounds like you're not going to avoid You're going to go through. <laughs> you're right. Sorry if I gave it. No, the, the battle... We're never not going to be in a battle as long as we're alive. But the, the, point that it, the point that I was making, just in terms of 
Revelation is Christ defeated Satan, that battle's over. He allowed him a time. And if you could hold off on this, Bob, I, and maybe not, but one of the questions that I wanted to ask in our last meeting is why does he do that? Because at the end, it becomes clear that he's defeated Satan, he's let him out for a time, but eventually he's going to be put away. We're not there yet, but um, I would say it's full of battles. I mean, they're everywhere, but I would say also they're full of punishments. The punishments are overwhelming. You know, the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls are just full of miseries. Um, so, Does it not matter where you're at in that battle or what part of that? Where, so could you, you, know, you, you were mentioning it, and they mentioned also what about you know, the sign of the cross on your forehead and all that. And that's, that's good if you have that, but how do you know that you had that other through baptism and through uh, the ash from, you know, ash from Wednesday? But it's... But you're still in this. You're in the battle, and you got to you got to stay there and continue on through that. But it sounds like a lot of people are not going to make it through that. Yeah, I'm not sure how to respond. I'm not sure that I hear a question there. But it seems to me one of the one of the points of Revelation, um, one of the aims of Revelation, from God through John. Mm -hmm is to encourage everybody to persevere. And it's clear, it's clear that lots of people will not. That's why I made the point earlier, you know, that the battle's been won. Um, Christ is allowing um, a time afterwards. And the interesting thing about that time that makes it different from the time before is people know he's won. So they have more of a reason to endure than they did before. And they don't. That's why I made. That's why I made the point that it seems to me things will go worse for them. You know, it's a. I mean, what can Christ do more than He's already done to help everybody? So, the the revelation is full of misery, punishments, woes, um, page after page. But it seems to me the point at the end is endure, hope. Paul says, um, endurance builds up hope. That you know that. And Suzanne's comment on the way here, you know, that the, the, one, the impression she takes away is that the world is full of woes and misery. There's plenty to go around. You know, they'll never not be there. And the, the, the problem for us is, particularly, I mean, I, I think I said this in a note somewhere, one of our temptations in our world from the left, utopian left, and from science is we think if we do this, if we do this, we'll be happy. If we do this, we'll solve our problems. So the whole mentality of the modern world is, this is a fundamental principle. It's a paradigm. And, and Revelation is full of paradigms. Cities falling and... The paradigm of our time is if you know something, you have control over it. You have power. So if we've got a problem, all we have to do is get the right answer and we'll solve it and make everything okay. So we live in a world in which um, we're encouraged to believe knowledge can save us, we can save ourselves. All we have to do is get the answer. So there's so much in the modern world that, you know, runs counter to this, that, that will undermine um, any encouragement for people to hold on, to endure, to suffer. Because the premise of the modern world is if we know something, we can answer it and do away with suffering. The principles of the modern world are security, comfort, freedom from suffering, 
control over things. That's, those are, I think most of you would agree with that. Um, and everything about Revelation says seals, trumpets, bowls, unleashed armies of, you know, of men, of demonic forces, of natural calamities. Um, I think that's why I was um, so glad for Suzanne's comment that um, wolves aren't going to stop. You know, we live in the world, and one of the things you take away from Revelation is we have to endure. There's, there's more of a reason for enduring now than there was before, because we know that fight is over. It's not over for us. The question is, will we live out our faith? Will we make our faith real when it's tested? And we know the answer to that. There are hordes of people leaving the churches. All of them. All of them. Greek Orthodox, or the Eastern Orthodox, Protestant world, Catholic world, the, the, the nuns, the people who don't have any beliefs, those numbers are increasing. You know, we're so we're, it's, it's, it seems to me it's impossible to miss the nature of the modern world. Will we endure? Will we, you know, will we live out this? And right now, according to Revelation, we have every reason to do that. Because it's, it, it's so much clearer about calamities than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, Christ is walking around in a human world much like the world we do. People are living, they're going to sleep, they're under Roman occupation, but still, they're doing okay. You read Revelations and you want to crawl under your cover to escape the locusts and the... Sister-in-law says she wants to die before. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comments? for Karen, yeah, you have... Anybody else? Okay. Um, just a couple of points to reinforce these opening comments. Um, remember in Matthew 24, we spent a good amount of time on that passage. Um, um, Christ is lamenting the apostasy of the Jews once again. And he's reached a point now where, in one sense, he's renounced them. Um, he came for the house, of, he came for the lost sheep. He's the lost, he's the good shepherd. It's absolutely crucial to see he's the good shepherd. But as, as he understands it's when he arrived, and as we do, he's the shepherd of Israel. He came to find the lost sheep. Okay, that's the house of Israel. And uh, again and again, he finds these people outside the house who have more faith than the people inside it. And he's, I've said, he's overwhelmed. He's, over, he's overcome with love. He says, I've not seen a love like this. And, and he heals them. And finally, he turns to the Gentiles and he makes that clear in the things he says. He makes it clear in some of his parables. Here in 24, in... Um, book 20, well, the end of 23, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who um, are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And you know that when he looked on Jerusalem, he wept. He knew that it was he knew that it was going to be destroyed and wept. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, "You see all these things, do you not truly I say to you there will be not there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." The temple's going to be destroyed and a new temple, a church but it's a church that's going to be far more concerned with the inner life than the Jews were. Because the Jews define themselves by outward actions, by the law. And you know that Christ is calling people to a love that's inward. So the temple that will be built in its place will be what we understand to be the church, but it's also that place where we encounter God in our hearts, in love. This is the discourse, the Olivet Discourse, in, it's in the garden. Um, they, the disciples say, when we, we know about this coming, and Christ says, uh, I'm the Christ, they will head many astray, and you will hear of wars, rumors of wars, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine, famines, earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the sufferings. Then they will deliver you up. He says the same thing will happen to you. Um, but he who endures, go down a little bit, he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Bob, just a, a, a thought. You know, I, I'm not even sure that this is going along, you know, your own way of thinking, but it seems to me in view of every, these are the disciples, that one of the things we have to take away from this is if you try to be good, things are going to get harder for you. The, Satan's not going to make things easier for anybody who's trying to be good. If he's going to go after anybody, it's going to go after somebody who's trying to, so very, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a world in which we, this is the Protestant mind, the gospel of prosperity. The Old Testament. Salvation was associated with rewards, that you've made it. That was taken as a sign. If you fell off from that, it was taken as a sign there's somewhere a sin in your house and. The whole world is a guck with success, material wealth. Those are signs that you made it. That's also a sign for some believers that you're saved. Christ is making it clear if you're trying to be good, things are not going to go easy. So the question is, the harder you struggle, the more you're going to be attacked. Will you endure? Will you persevere? If you're waiting until you have success and everything's comfortable, you may be missing something. I can't say. You know, but all the martyrs, whom he talks about in Revelation, all the martyrs died. And he said, others are going to die. They're going to be killed too. So being saved isn't associated with making it socially, having wealth or security or, you know, wherever anybody is struggling to be with Christ, the attacks are going to be greater. That's what Christ is telling the disciples right now. They're going to come after you. So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take what is his house, your property. And let him who's in the field not turn back to take his mantle, your property again, your possessions. 
and also for those who are with child, for mothers who are pregnant or have a children. You're asked to let go of the world because the desolation is going to get worse. Alas, and alas for those who are sick with child, for the days who give suck to those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No one never will be. If those, and if those days had not been shortened, no human would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be short. Because if they were lengthened, the pain would be too great. So this is long for revelation. This is Christ approaching the crucifixion. And he's warning what they're going to be facing. So, um, and remember the, the lines we close with. So also, this is 32, chapter 24, verse 32. Learn from the fig tree. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. A new heaven and earth will come into being at that moment when he, gets, when he rises from the tomb. He, the cross kills him. He rises. He ra he's raised from the dead several days later. So, so in <laughs> I'm partly looking forward to literature again. Remember when we did Dante and some of our other works, we said every work of heart, art has four levels of meaning. The literal, the allegorical, the tropological. You've got it in my notes if you look on the first page. The literal, the allegorical, the tropological, the, ana the anagogical. We're here. Literally, we're here. You can't deny that unless you're a skeptic in your head or one of the people Chesterton keeps talking about. We're here together. Literal. Allegorical. We're either going back to an old way in our lives, giving in, or moving forward to new. So at every moment, every moment of our life, we're either returning to the old man, what the church calls the old man, or the new man, the new Christ in each one of us. That's allegorical. Tropological is what we ought to be doing. Are we doing what we should be doing? What Christ asks us to do? Are we really living that? And anagogical is final times, as they are in heaven. You know, so we're either moving towards blessedness or we're going in the other direction. But those are the final ends. It's going to be one or the other. Do we live our lives aware of those different levels of meaning? Because they're always there every event in life. Is there anything going on in the modern world to encourage us to see life in multiple levels? Outside of literature, I don't know of it. Because the modern world says it's literally this or it's mathematics. It's in a world of mathematics. So, we talked about literature. Sorry, this isn't to toot my horn here. It's just to find an illustration. You know that in all the poetry that we've been reading or the literature, We've talked about the meaning of things and the way in which literature helps us participate in a see more going on in life. And we've talked about the importance of the Eucharist. Um, to, to, to receive the Eucharist, we really have to participate in that act. To see it as a sacrificial act, we're asked to, to act for the good of others, to make that a way of living for us. Um, and once we take Christ in the Eucharist, I've asked, where are we? On our way to the parking lot, 
when we've received Christ, where are we? He's just given himself to us in his kingdom. We're on the way to the parking lot. Where are we? And I've asked you that in literature because I've, you know, so much of the work I've done is on one level, like the supernatural love poem, the little girl pricking herself. It's a girl pricking herself. But it's clear that everything that takes place in that poem relates her to the crucifixion. Do we see it? Literature's been helping us to see a wind hover, the bird, in that moment of hovering. Remember for, for um, Hopkins? The really great poets show us something more is going on. Do we see it? Do we see it? Eliot's um, poetry that I've read you. Um, um, where are we? It's, it's not here, it's not there, it's not where the dance is. Where the dance is, it's England and not England. Eliot takes us as close to the apophatic as any poet I know. So, Revelation is taking us there. We're in this world while we're of another constantly. So when we read it, we have to hold on to both those levels. We're in history, we're in eternity. And it makes for a difficulty in reading. How well are we reading? Okay, big question of, um, of our work. On the first page at the bottom, I said there are basically three ways of reading Revelation. Lots of people see it as an, um, as an account of already things that have already happened. And they um, popularly look back to the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, that's one of the, um, because in one sense, Judaism was directly attacked when its temple and was destroyed. Um, they see it as a record of the past. There are other people who see it as, um, as an account of events to come, so they look forward. Um, I, 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 I was just surprised to see how many people saw the woes in terms of the um, Kuwait War, or the Iraq-Iranian War, or the Second World War, or any of those things. And I'm sure there were lots of people when um, COVID hit. But, I mean, I, my response to that, I, I, I wouldn't have done this, but I, my response is, that's a scourge. <laughs> it's worldly. I mean, it was everywhere. Is, is that an indication of the third woe? I, I just would not say that. You know, lots of people will say events in the past. Lots of people will say events in the future. It seems to me both are there. Um, that we're, we're encouraged to see that everything that's happened is always happening again because that's the nature of history. Babylon fell, the Persian Empire fell, Rome fell, America's going to fall. It will not, and if we're looking at America right now, it's hard, at least hard for me to wonder whether we're going to, I am so proud of our country. I'm not very proud of what's going on in our country right now. I love this country. If, Chesterton, if, if you love somebody, you've got to love them more when things get bad. That's what Christ did. I'm not going to abandon our country, but I don't have very many good things to say about what's going on with it right now. All those empires fell. Um, so we know that. So um, it, it seems to me that by the very nature of Revelation, we're encouraged to see it's about events that have passed, that are going to recur, they're going to happen again. But at the center of them, is something we can't have a doubt about. He was here. We saw him. We touched him. We saw him die. We saw him 
rise again? That can't be a question. At the center of all these things that go on is a God who came down and took on human nature to save us. Will we live our lives in wonder, in mystery, even with the things that we know? No. I was just going to say that, um, you know, through, through our history, the history of the world, there have been you know, a lot of mysteries and difficulties before our time. And I'm sure that people have looked at Revelation that way too. So it's just like you were saying, it's like a cyclical thing. Now we're seeing earthquakes and wars, but you know, in the, or the coronavirus, but in the time of the plague. Right, right. You know, I'm sure those people saw it that, right. that way too. So right. it's something that it can be interpreted based on different realities. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to get ahead, I, but I'm going to get ahead. <laughs> <laughs> remember I love it's because I love the end I love the end of the Bible I, it, to me it's just remarkable remember the revelation ends with Christ saying come to his bride come don't ever forget that well, I, I love the way Doc put it and she said how did you, you put it you, God was not above sending sufferings to us how did you put it he was not above sending sufferings to us all the time because he sends us, you know, he allows all these plagues. So, how did you put it? Wasn't he's not above? What was your. I didn't see him as a doting grandfather. Hmm? I didn't see him as a doting grandfather, but he was perfectly capable of. Perfectly capable. With trumpets and bowls to be dumped on our heads. Yeah. Her phrase was he's perfectly capable of sending punishments all the time. <laughs> so, he's not a doting grandfather or husband or wife the God we're talking remember the remember the line when we did the the wind or the, uh, the wreck of the Deutschland when the ship was going down and that sailor would and the description of Hopkins was the guy dandling from the line dandling is the word you use when a father is dandling a child this is God the father this is in the middle of a wreck and people are dying this, I love her phrase this is not a God above babiness. <laughs> Pretty tough minded. He went to a cross. Okay, let's turn to Revelation. So Revelation begins with um, two important events structurally for the whole poem. The first one is John's um, a prisoner on Patmos. He's on an island, presumably being persecuted because of his Christian faith. And while he's there, somebody speaks to him. This is Revelation 1. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. There it is, Bob, at the very opening. The tribulation and the kingdom and, and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. And the test, notice he's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not going, poor me, you know, he's on the island of Patmos because God's word. He's not blaming God there. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, the Sabbath, and I heard behind me um, a loud voice, write what you see. And you know that um, he has this vision of the, the, um, the seven golden lampstands and the stars. In the end of chapter 1, 
Um, the voice says, write this down, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in the right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, the bishops, we assume, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, and by the way, I've, I think we've said this, seven represents the completeness of things. So, by this we're meant to see that he's talking about all the churches everywhere and the bishops who look over them and it's clear from the letter some bishops are doing a really good job and some bishops are not I hope that sounds familiar <laughs> the American bishops about 15-20 years ago well lots of people had some things to say about what they were doing let me just leave it that way but but here at the very beginning um, Christ is giving John an exegetical principle to explain how to do something. You know, this is what this means. Seven from this point on will mean completeness, whatever it is. I'm just going to read from three of the churches. So from this point on, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through Revelation, picking out sections just to give a sense of things. I'm trusting you've all read it. My concern is to give a principle so that we're understanding what's going on as I get through it, okay? Just as I am right now. So Christ asked him to send these letters to the, the seven churches. And these are probably the most prominent churches in the world at that time. So here's what's interesting. John is in time, he's in history, he's rooted in history. He's being asked by Christ to write these letters to groups who've already been formed, otherwise Christ wouldn't, have anything, or Christ wouldn't have anything critical to say of them. So he's looking back to a past, and God is encouraging them to correct themselves. So here at the opening, we're literally in time. John's going to write to these existing churches in time, but he's going to be assuming a past and a future. Is that clear? Because they've not been doing what they should do, and they're being asked, clean it up. Straighten out. So, is everybody clear? So right there, we've got an image of the tensions, the complexity of time. Okay? So, chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks them on the seven golden lampstands. So, you're being given images of the light the grace radiating from God, right, in the stars, the lampstands, offered to the churches. Is that clear? It's, it's like an image of graces or light being given to them. Okay, and they're imaged in stars, lampstands. Okay, um, the lampstand I think was actually an image from the um, Jewish temple. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They've been so from the past they've been going forward well. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So how I mean how often is this true? Backsliding is one of the favorite words of the church. You you are inspired to do well. You go to a Bible class and get all worked up and feel, and then two weeks later, doldrums or, you know. 
So here's a church that was on fire with love, um, but, they've, but they've faded in some ways. Remember then what you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The condition of going on is repenting. Yet this you, have, you hate the, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Those were heretical movements. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. To the angel of, he goes on to another one. The condition of going on is repenting. You had this great fervor at one point, you've cooled. Pick it up, recover your earnestness again. Okay. Um, verse 18, to the church of Theatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, you have your love and faith and service and patience endurance that your um, latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality, to eat food, um, sacrifice to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a stick, a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches shall know that. I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each as, um, as your works deserve. Um, the Protestant movement of inefficacy of good works, Christ is saying, I will give you according to your works. If you love, you will show it by what you do. Um, he says about the deep things of Satan, I do not lay upon you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. He who conquers and will, who keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received power from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. That's Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's, inter it's interesting that the Jezebel is at the center of this difficulty here. This is the, I'm not going to do all of them. It's too much. I'm only going to take a moment to comment, because this is a dangerous thing, but I want to offer something here. Men have always been asked to be brave. Forever. Forever. Just We live in an age in, in which women um, have been given a place to sort of step forward. The number of abortions has increased proportionally into this. This is an age, it's, it's defining of women. You, you cannot find, you cannot go back in history anywhere and find an age like this. But the image of women is in terms of power and control. The effect of it is the millions of babies that are being killed. I mean, abortion is the great crime, I believe, of our age. Women have got this tremendous ordeal they're facing in this world because they're being invited to step forward in new ways. Um, but the last 
last thing most of them have behind them is a Mary. And it's interesting to me that the pro-life movement in answer to the pro-choice movement involve a lot of women who hold a traditional faith. Well, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know what the numbers of Christians and Catholics are. It's a tremendously trying age for women. Women are in a position today they've never been into, tempted, they're facing temptations that to me are extraordinary. So, the last one in his list This is 3.15. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you were would that you were would that you were cold or hot, rather one or the other. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. He would prefer to have somebody cold or hot because even if you're like, let's take somebody who just lives for nothing, that person when he undergoes a conversion is probably going to give more to his conversion than somebody who stays lukewarm. I mean, if you go back, if you go back through all the letters, this is one of the most threatening. I will spew you out of my mouth. Um, being lukewarm is not what he wants. For you say I'm rich. I have prospered here. There are those qualities. And I need nothing. How much closer to the modern world can you get? Not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to... And it's interesting. Notice the verb he uses here. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich. And it's like he's talking to merchants. His language is the language of merchants. I'll sell you this. Um, but if, if you want gold, I'm going to give you a different kind of gold. For me, gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. These people are convinced they see. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. There's my point, Bob. If he's going to love somebody more, it, it's likely it's not going to go easier for that person. To be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me, he who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said. Right now, I picture Benedict. Having a, <laughs> I picture Benedict having a meal with God. Um, so, he's just been told by Christ to write these letters, okay? He's on Patmos, and now suddenly he looks up and the door to heaven opens and he sees a vision. And it's at this point that he's transported, either he's transported or the vision appears to him so heaven is present to him. He's in the spirit. He sees God on the throne. The 24 elders, I've heard different interpretations. I really, I can't say this authoritatively. My own, my own opinion on this is the 24 elders are the books of the Bible. If you put them all together. And the four creatures are the evangelists. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Um, they're gathered around the throne, so they are the closest expression of the Trinity, God and Christ and the, um, the Spirit that we have. Um, and the um, after describing the figures and the 24 elders falling down and um, all of them worship and he says worthy art thou our Lord our God to receive glory and honor and power for that it's create all things and by thy will they existed and were created I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll this is God holy the scroll um, Christ takes it from him for a moment it's as if John weeps and there seems to be a sadness in heaven because nobody can open it um, I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it then one of the elders said to me weep not lo the line of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so this is it's already happened so remember because to go back to that point sequentially we're not going to get to the battle until nine books 9 10 11 then we're going to get a description of the battle between Christ and the devil here he's saying he's already conquered that events already taken place otherwise there wouldn't be the churches to write the letters right so do you see the time dimensions we're working with here I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. By the way, the seven spirits are identified by Isaiah. I don't have the notes on it right now. I think you probably have them in the... But they're the seven spirits. Counsel, wisdom, understanding, might. It's all the, um, the gifts that I, um, Isaiah, Isaiah mentions, lists, and that Paul picks up too. So what we're given in this description is all of these things emanating from God. I hope that's clear. There can be no God who does not have those powers. They are, from, they are of him. That's his nature. Counsel, understanding, might. Yeah? Those are him. They're imaged in those lampstands and the stars. But it's as if they emanate. Be because if... <laughs> they, oh, sorry, this is good. Picture the Trinity for a second. God, sometimes I just pray for you guys. Picture the Trinity for a second. In the Trinity, remember that we had that line from St. Thomas, two is not greater than one. They all share the same nature, so one is as great as the other. In the Trinity, there's this called the perichoresis, the indwelling, one with another. Can you picture any, this is going to play out, I think it's going to play out in a moment. Can you picture any one of the, of the persons of the Trinity not existing by offering himself and receiving something at the same time? If they're indwelling, right? The very nature of God is, the goodness is to offer itself and receive. Right? That's just, and if we were created in his image, that's what we, that should be defining our lives. Um, this, so the lamb approaches who makes clear he would, had been slain and he has these powers um, and those around him sing worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals for thou was slain and by the blood didst ransom men so it's been done now 
Um, Christ opens the seals and John is describing what's going to happen. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, come and I saw and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow. Before I go down the list for a second, I want to just... Whatever we think about this moment, remember, nobody in heaven is worthy to open that. So presumably that says something um, about Christ. He was slain, he gave his life, and he rose again. So those are the conditions of opening that seal. And, and just to look forward for a second and try to establish something. Seals represent something enclosed that authorizes something. Something's going to happen, right? A packet. You always seal it with that wax and close it. The only one capable of opening that seal is Christ because he was slain and rose. So his, whatever we make of the seals, they carry that in him. It comes from God. It's authorized by God. Christ is giving it to John. And we're going to see each one of the seals opened, okay? Yeah. That's the way I picture it, Heather. I mean, I'm picturing it the way you are. I mean, I think that's the common understanding of forever seals have been a something enclosed. It authorizes something. There's a power and authority in it. Um, and not everybody has the qualification to open that seal, to break it so that it can be opened. So we get this from God. That's what a seal is. Just stop think about it for a second. Um, Seals contain an authorization of something. Trumpets announce something, right? You blow a trumpet when you're announcing something. You, very often it can be a battle cry or a celebration after a battle, but it's announcing something. It's about to happen. It's, the trumpet is symbolic of that. The seal is an authorization. So here we're getting something from God. I love, I love Suzanne's. How did she put it? I'm, what was she? Not great. Or how did you put that phrase again? Help me out here. He wasn't above, I keep using that phrase, he wasn't above giving of all these. Yeah, but it was your phrase that I'm. But the, the seals come from God, the Father, right? Um, John take, or Christ takes them and then presents these um, to John and he's describing now what they contain. The first seal is the first, you all, we all know these, it's the first of the four horsemen. The first one is um, a rider on a white horse with a blow and a crown. The second one, and each time um, one emerges, it comes in response to um, one of the creatures, that is one of the four evangelist saying, come, 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 come. The second one um, is another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. He removed it so that men should slay one another. When he opened the third, um, he saw a black horse and in its hand, the rider has a balance. 
It's a trading instrument. It's a, it's a merchant world or weighing things. It's the scale of justice. Um, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not harm oil and wine. The fourth one is um, a pale horse and a pale rider, and his name was Death, and Hades followed him. Um, the fifth seal shows all these souls under the altar who were martyred for Christ. And it's a large number. The sixth, um, at the, on 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees. Its winter fruit went shaken by a gate. The sky vanishes, the kings of the earth, the great men, um, slave free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from us. They want to die because with their faithing, the, the, the ordeals they're faithing are, are so painful. So let me throw this to you, but let me offer this thought because here's the, the first of the difficulties, the real symbols. It seems to me that the, the four, one of the differences between what happens with the seals and the trumpets is um, these are authorizations. The four horsemen are are sent out, each one with a different power. Um, the, the church sees the first one as Christ, and I think that's true. Um, we can take each one of the four and s see the power for authorizing them in God. Um, so they're, they're things to be done. They're authorized. When the trumpet comes, we're getting an announcement of things that are going to happen then, when all these plagues and calamities are going to take place. The last two um, um, things that take place here with the, the fifth and sixth seal um, are, are point to things that, one, have already happened and that will happen. Um, those who dwell under the earth that were martyred will um, they will be given a rest for a while but their brethren all the rest who follow them will also be killed like them when the sixth seal is open he looks and there's a great earthquake so there's a natural disaster so um, so we're moving from I feel like I'm on risky ground here but we're moving from things that are authorized, that are in their motion to be, and to something that has been done, the martyrs, and a natural disaster that's taking place. When the trumpets come, they're going to be announcing things that, let me just take a couple and then come back and leave, um, take up whatever questions or comments you have. Um, when the, the Lamb opens the seventh seal, this is chapter 8, there's silence in heaven for a half an hour, um, and then um, followed by thunder and lightning, which are the images of the power of the throne. And what begins then are angels blowing trumpets. Um, eight, chapter eight, verse seven. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, which fell on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet. Um, 
a great like something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea a third of the sea became blood a third of the living creatures died a third of the ships were destroyed the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven that's satan it's called wormwood the name of the star is wormwood a third of the waters became wormwood um, and many men died of the water because it was made bitter um, a fourth blew his trumpet a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of day, a third of night. Everything. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell in the earth. That's the fourth. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. That is, I think that's wormwood. It's already fallen. Um, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened it and then out come these locusts. So the fifth angel sets in motion what will be a swarm of locusts um, um, overrunning the earth. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death will fly from them. In appearance the locusts were like horses arrayed for battle. On their heads were what looked like the crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots. They have tails, they sting. They have, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon, that is Satan. Both of those mean, both of those names mean destruction, annihilation. Um, the sixth angel blows his trumpet um, and four angels were released who released um, um, countless numbers of Calvary um, who, who go about destroying. Let me stop for a moment before we go farther because I want to, um, we're getting close to our time. Seven seals the seventh seal, the seventh seal um, presents us with the angels who are going to um, um, blow these trumpets, and then we get these um, the the first four trumpets um, um, who involve destructions of a third of everything in creation, basically. So, but now let me stop for a second because. It seems to me this is all difficult, and I'm, I'm not a scholar in this, so. The seals authorize something. They're set in motion. We don't see the horsemen do anything. We know what they're capable of doing, but they're released to carry out what they're going to do. And then it ends with um, the description of the martyrs and the natural disaster. And then the, the seventh seal makes an opening for the first of the trumpets, and we get... Um, these images of the trumpets causing some calamity. Okay. Um, blood and hail fail on the earth, a mountain tumble over burning, um, causing a third of the sea became blood, the living creatures of the sea, a third of them died, the ships were destroyed, the third angel blew his trumpet, a, um, a star fell, it's wormwood, the fourth blew his trumpet, a third of the sun, everything in creation, the sun, the moon, everything, day, night, 
loses a third of itself. Let me stop there now, just to open up questions to you guys. Any responses? You guys may have some knowledge about these things that I don't have. I'm glad to, for any of you to share what's going on. Um, any questions or comments about the seals and then the trumpets? And one of the questions that I want to get to bef before we end on this note is, um, why a third of everything with the trumpets? Those opening trumpets, all four of them, result in a third of everything being destroyed. So... Well, it relates back to the Trinity, also the, uh, back to the Satan too, the Satan, the Antichrist, and the uh, false apostle. Bob, can you flesh that connection with the Trinity out? Because I don't think it's going to be obvious to people. Can you give, explain that at all? Give any understanding of it? I don't know. I, I'd have to go back to this book here, maybe, but it was in here. We've got to go on our own wits here. Yeah. Heather. Yeah. And so you have that. It's, it's a bringing of incompletion. Say it again. Three is the perfect number. Like three is the number of God, and it's represented in all sorts of things in nature and mathematics. Right. So you take one of those things away, and suddenly you, there's a there's a lack of balance. Um, Just let me press it. Is lack of balance the right? Wait, hold on. You got the. Here, let me, because I, I really want to take a minute with this. Because people, people will use these numbers and go, a third means Trinity, without any sense of what it means. So let me just pursue this for a second. Take Christ out of the Trinity. You can. <laughs> so would you just call that a lack of balance? To follow it? What, what, hold on, let me put What happens in that moment? Take, take God the Father out. doesn't matter. Take, let's just take, take Christ out of that. Can what... In, can you describe what ensues as a lack of balance? How do you describe the effect of that? Something is broken. You don't have that wholeness anymore. I mean, it's more than a lack of balance when you're talking about, like, if you're talking about removing Christ from the Trinity, the Trinity. It's more than a lack of balance. It's a, um, there's no completion. There's no with completion? You're back to those terms again. Get him. I don't want to hear balance again. <laughs> We're talking about the moon, the sun, human beings, the sea, everything in creation. Suddenly, a third of everything is gone. Is that a lack of balance? about the spirit is emanating from the father of the son so if the son goes away the spirit goes away as well <laughs> what are we left with are we left with god at all we're left with the father yeah but you know well wait so wait wait hold on i'm so glad i mean absolutely mike i'm so glad for you so we know that the son only exists because the god conceives them in so the son is not created right 
He's, he's begotten, not made. The Father is uncreated. There was nothing before him, another, you know. So, if his concept of himself is the Son, right, he, he thinks of himself, it's the Son. The love between them is the Spirit. Can the Father exist, can even the Father exist if you take away the Son or the Spirit? What, what, what do you have as a God, then? Well, I don't know, but we have no creation. <laughs> <laughs> Is that clear to everybody? Is that clear? No? You know, you know the truth. God's concept of himself... His image of himself is the Son. So he's co-eternal. He's not made, otherwise he'd be contingent. He'd be like anything created, like a man. But he's not. He has the same uncreated. He's begotten, not made. He's one with the Father. So is the Spirit, the love between them. Take away the Spirit. Your mic is right on. You've got no Son. If you take away the Spirit and the Son, what do you have? Jehovah. Sorry? Yeah, it's like a false image. It's, it's like something created in the place of God because God's no longer there. So you've got whatever, however people will image God, but it won't be God as we know it. So the condition he's talking, I mean, I don't even know how to, loss of balance won't do it. You're talking about essential things taken away that will affect everything in creation. Um, it's just hard to imagine. Um, people living in those conditions. Um, it's horrible to think about. If you take away the point, I mean, I, th I think the way... Why Right. Uh, why, the question I, is why a third? Yeah. Why not half? Why not? Uh... And why? Why so consistently in each in everything in creation to take away a third of it? What's going on here? So you've severely damaged it, but you haven't. Say it again, Doc. So you've severely damaged it, taking away a third. You've severely damaged it, but you haven't destroyed it. Everything else, yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm just, you know. The opportunity to persist. <laughs> right, to endure. Yeah. <laughs> to endure. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. there's still hope. I guess there's still hope that something's yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in, in a situation like that, you know, if, that is, if it literally happens, which I think, you know, can be argued that that might be the case, is we would be forced to rely on God. We would have nothing else. If you're up, you know, if the mountains are being upended and the islands are sinking and, you know, and it talks about that, like, you know, that things yeah. that are up will go down and things that are down will rise and, you know, the stars fall in the sky. All of this stuff happens. Like, we go back to, it's just us and God. Yeah, and I guess... We don't have all that's the other that's before the locusts. And, and that's before the locusts. The, locusts. the armed locusts. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. this is Remember, the locusts came out um, for Moses in Egypt, too. So that's. To, but to go back, because I think Suzanne's point is a good one. The world is. It's really. I mean, it's just an interesting condition to think about here. Um, 
it, not everything's destroyed. So in my mind, it's not just us and God. The question that I'm left with myself anyway is, not everything's destroyed, but if a third of everything is taken away, that means you're taking away something essential. I'm going back to the Trinity just to try to see the implications of this. Not everything's destroyed, you're still living. But it's a question in my mind, given what we're going to see in, in a couple of chapters, will people continue to believe in God? I mean, you can say there's only God in you, but I'd say, looking at the modern world, we've got a, we've got a lot that's not been destroyed. But there's a lot of people who won't give a thought to, to God. They will grasp onto what they have. As if that were all there was, was all there was. You know, so people may turn to God or they may not. But if you lose a third of everything, the condition you're facing, to me that's a, I, I don't know, it's like a metaphysical condition. There's a metaphysical aspect to what John's describing here. It's not just mathematically a third. Something at the essence of, of everything has something is essential has been taken away. How will men live? What will they do? Will it be only them and God so they'll turn to God? That's not my assumption. It's a serious question whether, they, whether they'll even believe in God or you know whether they won't attach themselves more desperately to what they do have. I mean, um, but he, Karen, go ahead. Serious question, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think that's the way we're supposed to be thinking that something metaphysically essential happens here. Um, and to, I, 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 to, like, what was your phrase? God's not a, beneath that, or he's not. That's my phrase. Yours is anyway. The God, the God is allowing this. There's a metaphysical condition set in motion here. God, so the white writer goes out, the red, the, the black, the pale. Um, one has been given the power to take away things, to remove things. Others are capable of destroying or conquering. So these metaphysical forces are being, they're being given an image so that we can imagine something whose roots are metaphysical completely spirit from God but they're going to take they're going to take some form that will affect us here on earth and all of them all of them are catastrophic and at some metaphysical level if you're taking away I mean really I'm glad for all of your comments if you take away a third of them how do we even begin to describe that condition um, here let's finish because our time is up here oh, hmm. Oh, sorry. Could it be the beginning of a new heaven and earth? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. What's interesting to me that you ask it is that's exactly what Christ said. All these things are going to come. Um, and it's interesting. This is why, I mean, it goes to the questions you guys are raising. Um, all of this will come to pass before this generation. All of this will take place before this generation passes. And we know it's going to happen. He's going to die and rise again. And what we know as the temple, heaven and earth, should be radically changed. Because God has just come and done something um, that should change that. 
even though the catastrophic things are going to continue. I mean, we learn it from here because God's going to go, he's going to allow it for a long time, even though he conquers the devil. But, um, and so Christ is saying, you know, everything you know is going to change. All of this is going to happen. All these apocalyptic events that he's just described. Um, here, before we go quick, just... Um, Um, the sixth trumpet is blown. We've got all these plagues and these troops. And he sees another angel coming down, striding the, the, um, the land and sea with a seal. And um, John was about to write, and then the angel says, seal it up. And then he gives him this, this seal to eat. Take and eat. Scroll, sorry, scroll. And he eats it. It was tasteful until it reaches stomach, and then it became bitter. That's a sign of prophecy. He's going to have to do something that's painful for him. Um, and then we're given a description of these two olive trees. And we, I've heard different things. Some say Enoch and um, Isaiah. I think there's a good reason for thinking it's Moses and Isaiah. But both of them have the power to do things. Um, and on... 11 about hmm? are those the two witnesses? Oh, sorry Moses and Isaiah are they the two witnesses? say the two witnesses yeah are, uh, I'm, I'm what does your book say? Uh, I don't know. leave it it's a good I mean do Moses and Elijah or Enoch and Elijah yeah yeah right um, I thought that's what I said did I not did I Isaiah Elijah. Oh, yeah. Two prophetic figures like that who are capable of um, causing real problems among men. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends from the bottom of the split will make war on them, conquer them, kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets. They'll, they'll lie there for a few days. Everybody around will be um, merry and glad because these two figures tormented them constantly. God will breathe into them again. Um, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up hither in the sight of their foes. They went up to heaven in a cloud. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified. We're just given descriptions of things that are constantly ongoing. I mean, those, they were a part of life then, they were a part of life during the Middle Ages, they're a part of our life now. Um, the second woe has passed. So we're being given a description of all that passes with the release of the locusts and um, the fatal effects of these two figures, Moses and Elijah, whoever it is. Um, <coughs> Yeah. And then, then they came back. And that's what this thing, and that's what created the big deal. Yeah, yeah. And it's a question, I mean, what we've got to bring to this. And that's the my book suggests that it's Peter and Paul. Yeah. I mean there's good I mean who you know, there's good reason. What what we know is these people um, cause a lot of hatred 
in what they were doing. Um, and I don't know whether we should take dying literally. Um, Peter and Paul make more sense because they both died. Um, but that's the first woe. And we know from what was said earlier that there are going to be three woes. Um, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So the first woe are all those locusts, the destruction, the armies set loose, um, all that happened with those two figures. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voices, heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ. So on another level, the battle's been won. So in whatever sense any world attempts to have a world power like Persia or Babylon or Rome or America, um, with what happens with what happens here with Christ, that's abolished. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit in their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, We give thanks to thee, Lord God Almighty. So, a thanksgiving is given for what God has done. Now remember, John is being given these visions. He started on Patmos. Um, he either ascends or, is, uh, or a vision is made available to him, but he, um, he's given the power to see these visions of the seals and the trumpets. All the calamities that follow, we've seen the seven seals. Um, this is the seventh trumpet. And it's at that point that the kingdom of the world is replaced by the kingdom of God. We know that these are going to go on, um, but we also know that, that the battle is spiritually at one level over. Christ has conquered death. He's conquered sin. We're being allowed a period afterwards for this trial, this test. We'll come to that at the end. But at this point, that's what we know. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, not noises, peal of thunder, and earthquake, all of which mark the presence of God. And a great portent, portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under its Mary, and now we're going to get a description of Mary pregnant with Christ and Satan pursuing her. This is where I want to stop. Um, what I'd like to do is, is take the next four or five chapters here through the battle in heaven um, and see where that takes us. And then we'll have one more class in which we'll finish Revelation up. Any, any comments or questions about what's ha happening to this point? Remember what I said in the beginning, like a, a, just a couple of things to reinforce this. I, it's crucial that we take Revelation seriously. It's so abstract that lots of people just dismiss it. They don't give it the attention it deserves. It's to be taken seriously because this is the only work that gives us a perspective from final ends. It's the only one. In all other t books, we're in immediate, intermediate time. If you read a novel, we're going to be in, an intermediate, in our time. Huckleberry Finn, Charles, it doesn't matter. We're going to be in this time. We do not have a, a, a glimpse of final ends. We get them occasionally in epics. There was something of that in the Iliad. The, uh, we, I'd ha I'll, I'll actually take a minute with that. But, but that was part of the epic world. In the novel, that's not true. Final ends is taken away. So take this seriously, and take seriously the comment 
the other comment that I made, that so much of what happens in Revelation leaves us with uncertainties, mysteries. We have to figure things out. But it's encouraging us to read everything that goes on in this life is serious now because it's connected to final ends. So if we're reading it well, we come out of it saying, we have got to change the way we read. For us, for us not to see this going on right now at every moment of our lives is to play, is to play with final ends. We saw that in the opening letters to the churches, we're, we're seeing it in every event that's taking place here. The easiest thing for Christians, we saw it in the seven letters. Get comfortable, take things for granted. Revelation shatters that. It's, um, it's full of the numinous, the dreadful, the awesome. God is all-powerful. Um, you can't take him for granted. So, any comments or questions? Or? In a lot of uh, the Virgin Mary's revelations, you know, in Fatima and other, and other um, places where she has um, talked to visionaries, there is always something of this, you know, like a punishment or... Yep. Yeah. And it's interesting that awful things follow. I mean, the secular world wants to deny them. There's conflict battles over that. Were they real? You know, I mean, they're, they're divisive. They, they point up divisions in our world. Um, this is a special book. It's visionary. We're asked to not see things the way we ordinarily see them. Do you think that there's been too much literal reading uh, of the, uh, the... I'm confused by uh, different theories of rapture. We hear a lot about it. It's been so much of a part, a part of popular novels and whatnot. That right. There are, there are different... Uh, I think there's a, a, a pre-tribulation rapture. And it's, uh, there's only yeah. three, four different yeah. theories. Yeah. I, it just all these theories swim around in my head. Uh, and I don't think the Catholic Church really supports mm -mm. any of those precise yeah. theories, right? Yeah, yeah. Can I, let me ask you all to do this for the next week before we meet, and I'll see if we can take a few minutes. I, I hinted at it, but I didn't want to, I really wanted to get us going in this. Why, why, why do the Protestants read um, Revelation differently? What, or let me put, why do Catholics read it differently? What does it say about the different, what does it say about the faith of those two denominations? What does it say about um, the way they read? Do you think that maybe because of our belief in the, the, the real presence and the Eucharist transubstantiation, uh, Catholics are a little more ready to accept mystery? Mystery. Hold off. So next week, no. Really, I really would like. No, I really, I really would. And 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 the Baptists. I mean, you're much more inclined to have a Baptist talk about the rapture, or the millennium. That this is where we are. That this is evidence. That this is. I mean, with a absolute certainty. Why? What's what's? I mean, this is a real test of our faith. What's to, to go to Mike's question? If we, I don't want to. It's too late right now. But I really would like all of you to give that some serious thought. What does it tell us about our faith that we read so differently? Because reading's at the center of it. These people are going to read and 
they're going to find the pre-rapture or the rapture or the millennium that we're at this stage. Hmm? So they, they're Protestants believing the Catholic Church is the dragon. Dragon, right. Well, yeah, right. it's interesting to me because the Protestants are so much on reading the Bible and yet it's said in there very clearly talked about works. Yeah, right. Yeah, all the way through. Yeah. yeah, and that's just dismissed. And it's also interesting if you, if you think about people who look at it as being about events in the past because when Christ comes to John in the beginning he talks about things that are going to come and so often when John is describing visions he's talking about something that's already happened and something that will happen so we're constantly in this Yeah. Uh, the struggles that went on with the early church. That's always been my understanding, and I'm not feeling warm and fuzzy about this anymore. Yeah. So I don't know. But I think it's, a lot of this has happened. Yeah. Yeah, remember what I said? A lot of it has, it will. And it, that doesn't mean it won't happen. Something like it won't happen again. But let me just, all Christians, Protestant, Catholic, to be a Christian means they should believe that what happened with Christ has happened. That fact can't be disputed. So Protestant and Catholic are going to say it's already happened, right? Christ was here. We know. I mean, that's why I'm pushing. He was there to our reason, our powers of reason. He present to our senses. You can't doubt that. But what you do from that point on in understanding Revelation, it's it. It's not an exaggeration to say both denominations read differently, even if they start with that same point. No Protestant, no Baptist that I know of is going to deny that Christ died and rose again. They all believe that. So do we. The question that I'm asking you to think about is, can we explain why the readings are so different the way they are? Why? What's going on with that? Serious question. Because if, if we answer that, it seems to me we'll do a better job with our own faith and we can defend it better because we'll understand why. Let's stop here. Okay? We'll, we'll, we'll take up from about 11 to 16, somewhere in there, 11 to 15, 16 next week. Okay?